The passage that we're looking at here is not a parable. There have been three parables that the Lord Jesus has issued just prior to this moment. Now we come to this moment and he's not giving a parable. There's pictorial language here, but it's not a story with a point to it. It is a declaration of what shall one day unfold at the time of Christ's return upon the earth. If you look through the teachings of the Lord Jesus, you'll discover that he never once refers to himself as the king. It's only found at one point in all of his teaching, and it's right here. Only in this passage will he describe himself as the king. Only in this passage will he, for a moment, issue before his disciples a picture of him reigning upon the earth. It's interesting that we understand that the disciples he's particularly speaking to are James and John and Peter. These three also were the ones who were on the Mount of Transfiguration when he was transfigured before them and they saw the majesty of this perfect man, the divine Son of God and Son of Man before them. And now he's before them again and now with explicit words and terms He speaks to them in a way that he has not spoken up at this point in time. He's hinted about it. He's touched upon it. He's inferred it. But now he speaks directly of himself as the king. He describes the moment of his final conquest of the world when all the peoples of the earth are brought before him. He is surrounded by an army of holy angels. He's vanquished all of his foes. He's rescued his people. And now he divides a flock of people into two classes. He's the king. He's in the moment of his return. He's set up his throne to begin his rule among the nations. He's determining who it is that will occupy his kingdom and who it is that shall be taken away into everlasting judgment. Here is a description of the Lord Jesus that the Lord Jesus gives of himself in that day. And again, this is the first and only time in all of his teachings that the Lord Jesus references himself as the king. He's extending to himself a position of great stature and prominence and sovereign power as he's never done before in all of his teachings. Listen again to the words that he speaks to Peter and James and John. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. That language there too is kingly language because the Jews understood the shepherd, the great shepherd was the king. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on His right, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Though this is the first time that Christ will use this term for himself, the king, it is not the first time that he refers to himself as the Son of Man. This was his most common term that he used to refer to himself. It's a title that is found in Daniel. When Daniel is presenting to us the Messiah. It's a term that Daniel used for the Messiah. And so the Lord Jesus takes this term and applies it to himself. Jesus understood that he was the prototypical or the quintessential man. He considered himself to be the fullest expression of humanity. His life will range to the highest heights of the experience and expression of human beings And his life will also, in a moment, descend to the deepest depths of that experience as well. 
The term son of man, by the way, though, excited because it was a messianic term, it excited the hopes of his disciples that he was the coming Messiah who would rule in all the world. And so to the term the king, he brings also the term the son of man. This is the term he's used over and over again. And now he reveals to him, yes, you're right, the son of man is the king. He's the king who's coming to rule. Then added to that, in this text, Jesus also intimates that he's the son of God. He says, he will say to them, Come thou blessed of my Father, enter into the kingdom that's been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. My Father, the King, the Son of God, the Son of Man, is the one who's acting in the passage that we're reading here. Now the next word that the Lord Jesus pronounces to his disciples after this great declaration that we're studying and considering in Matthew 25, 31-44, the next word that he speaks makes the declarations we're going to be considering here all the more striking. You'll find that in Matthew 26, verses 1 and 2. After having given the Olivet Discourse, after having brought it to the climax of the place of the king, establishing his kingdom, and determining who it is that will enter into his kingdom, surrounded by the glory of all the angels, sitting on his glorious throne, after having identified himself as the king, then the Lord Jesus says this in verses 1 and 2 of 26. Matthew writes, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. All that he said, all that's mounted of all this power and might, all that he finally reveals to these disciples to excite their anticipation is then concluded with this word, this declaration that he's about to be delivered up to be crucified. And only a few days before he would wear the crown of glory, he will suffer first under the crown of thorns. He'll suffer the rejection of the nation of Israel, the anguish of the cost, the darkness of the amassed sins of all mankind will be laid upon him and Jesus speaks of the victorious moment of universal conquest and of his power to render judgment over all mankind as the king just days before he endures the weakness of the cross. And in just a short while, they're going to go and they're going to watch him and they're going to see him suffering on the cross. They're going to see how his very humanity is being torn from him through the scourging and through the carrying of the cross and through the crucifixion. And as they watch all those things, I assure you that everything that they feel at the moment that this declaration is being read, all of it will be wiped from their minds. <laughs> They'll forget about it entirely. The king on his glorious throne will be forgotten. But then an hour will come with them when they'll remember his words again. When he comes before them in resurrected power, when he rises again from the dead, and he meets them and comes before them, his word of promise in this prophecy comes back to them with a rush, and they will never forget how his death made those words fly away from them, and they will never forget how his resurrection brought back these words to them with power and promise so that it could never be taken away from them again. The king has come. Now, they're going to endure sufferings themselves, and they're going to endure difficulty, and they're going to find themselves submerged into a time in which there's wars and rumors of wars in which they're put to death and they're persecuted, and they endure tremendous tribulation for the sake of the gospel. But now, they'll never forget. They'll never forget the words of the king and the promise that one day he will inhabit his glorious throne. And 
This Gospel of Matthew, by the way, will become the most widely read of all the Gospels for the early church, at least for the first three or four centuries of the early church. And that baby church, that persecuted church, that church that emerges in the midst of national and international turmoil, or global turmoil as far as they knew it, that church was also a church that was on a mission. And this declaration of the Messiah brought them great comfort. Let's look at some of the comforts they received from it. The first was this. Here in the declaration of Jesus Christ was a wonderful promise to the church that the mission that had been given would succeed. The mission that had been given would succeed. The king will return. He will gather unto himself all the peoples of all the nations of the earth. And from out of them all, he will find his sheep. From every nation, he will find his sheep. Just before the Lord Jesus ascends into heaven, he stands before his disciples and he gives a kingly command to them. He says in Matthew 28, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. He's the king. Go ye therefore into all the nations and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And Look, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, they're going to experience resistance in every place that they go. They're going to experience trials and difficulties and they're going to come against an age that is against all that they're proclaiming and the question may be asked at times in the midst of their trials and difficulties will they ever succeed will this poor band of individuals ever succeed but here before the Lord Jesus goes to the cross before he enters into his crucifixion and to what seems to be seeming defeat he declares them that there's coming a day in which he will find his sheep among all the nations and he will gather them to himself. Later on, John is going to be given a vision by the Lord Jesus of heaven's worship. And at that time, all in heaven and all the redeemed in heaven will be acknowledging Jesus' power to control all of human history. He is the lion who's overcome and prevailed in order that he might take up the scrolls of history and open them up and bring about the last cascading results of this world and this world's history. In Revelation 5 9 and 10, you hear the proclamations and the song of the redeemed people of God singing over the lion as he comes to take up the scrolls and open up the final stages of history in his sovereign might. And they say this. This is what John has heard singing and sounding forth from eternity future from the throne of this moment in time when this will take place. He hears the song of the redeemed coming and saying, You are worthy to take up the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you've made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. We're going to go into that kingdom. We're going to follow from your glorious throne and enter into that kingdom. You've gathered up a people from all the earth. Your sheep will be found by you and determined by you. And, and in this passage, the Lord Jesus is describing that day, that day. That's encouragement to the church. No matter what they suffer, no matter how difficult it is, it shall never be as tragic and as awful and as terrifying as the moment in which they saw Christ dying on the cross. But they'll have their own cross to bear. But they'll know that victory is there and to be found, and God will accomplish it. Here's the second thing. Here's a promise of the exaltation that will be theirs as they're brought into the reward of the kingdom. The early church in those centuries was made up almost entirely of the poorest and lowest of society. And yet the king is saying they're the ones that are going to be exalted. You can remember what Paul said describing the 
nature of the early church to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Let me read them to you, lest we forget, lest we think we're other than this. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to flesh, and not many mighty, and not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not or nothing to bring to nothing the things that are. Bruce Shelley, who is a church historian, quotes an early Roman critic of the Christians named Celsus. And Celsus, within those first centuries of the early church, wrote a critique of Christianity and its movement into the Roman world. And this is what he said. He said, their aim is to convince only worthless and contemptible people, idiots, slaves, poor women and children. These are the only ones who they manage to bring into their believers. Well, Celsius was largely right. The language of the learned and the wealthy in that day was Latin. The language of the poor and the slaves was Greek. And it was Greek that was the language of the early church. Celsius came late to his condescending insight, though. Paul made it long ahead of him. The nothings. God had chosen the nothings. Here was a word for the lowly and the meek. God had chosen them to be the ones whom the risen, returning king would call to inhabit his righteous kingdom forever and ever and reign with him. There's the reward. There's the promise. There's what's coming. Whatever the disenfranchisement that you're experiencing, whatever the banishment you're experiencing from the lines of power in this age, in this moment, you'll be the ones who reign with me. Here's the third thing. Here, the suffering and persecuted church is reminded of the pathway into the kingdom. I don't know how far we'll get into this this morning. Let's see. This is the main point of our message. Here, the suffering and persecuted church is reminded of the pathway into the kingdom. Take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 8. This, by the way, is instruction that we find and a theme that is repeated over and over again in the letters of Paul, in the letters of Peter, in the writing of James. Romans 8, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That's a rather wonderful thing. We're heirs with the King. That's why we're a kingdom of priests and will reign with Him. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may be glorified also together, or we also may be glorified together. Our Savior asserted himself as the king, and he put before us the vision of his glorious throne and of his universal sovereign power. He hinted of these things before when he taught and carried out his earthly ministry, but he only spoke of it by way of inference, but now he speaks of it very plainly at this moment in time. He was going to conquer. He was going to reign over a righteous kingdom that God had planned for the earth. He said all these things. He declared all these things plainly, 
And finally, after saying all that, that one thing the disciples were waiting for him to unveil and declare, that reason why they were following him, because they hoped that he was going to be the king. It was the one thing that they waited to have him. He hinted of it. He spoke to it. He intimated. Each time he drew near it, though, he drew back again. Each time it seemed he was going to become the king, he would retreat from the people as they sought to make him king. But now, at this moment, he finally speaks to his disciples and speaks of himself as the king who inherit. The glorious throne. Then after he said all those things, after finally having said it, he went to the cross and he died. Jesus did not suffer the agonies of the cross without a promise before him though. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us of the Lord Jesus that he suffered for the joy that was set before him. In other words, there was a prospect of glory and joy and triumph so great to be found in the suffering of the cross that he was willing to go there. Now the Lord Jesus has called upon his disciples to take up the cross and follow him, that they must be willing to suffer as well, that they must serve alongside of him and go into the agonies of that service and the agonies of his work to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he tells them of this suffering, but he doesn't ask them to suffer without the prospects of the promise as well. He puts before them as well. He promises them of a day in which the king shall come and a kingdom shall be established and they shall be called up into it and they shall participate in it forever and ever. He calls upon us to bear our cross and to be willing to follow him and the disciples will learn exactly what that means and they will discover what it means to suffer with him. They'll ultimately all of them die as martyrs but one and Many of them will suffer greater physical agonies than the Lord Jesus suffered in his own death upon the cross. He told them that their mission would bring them into great dangers, that it would bring upon them a rejection of family and nation and persecution and even death. He told them that it would be the inevitable consequences of their choosing to follow him and serve him and pursue his goal and his aims and live in obedience to him. But then he lets them know there was a kingdom up ahead glory, eternal glory to be gained. And after that, after that, after telling that, the Lord Jesus walked out through the cross to gain the crown. And he calls us to do the same thing. He calls us to do the same thing. I say this by way of transition, kind of carrying this thought forward here along a little bit. This pathway of suffering is one that comes to those who are committed to caring for Christ's people, who are committed to caring and seeking Christ himself, who are committed to carrying out the business of the Savior, the proclamation of the gospel. I want you to see something here in our text. Although all the nations are gathered before the Lord at this time, before he sets up his kingdom, and all the peoples of the nation are before the king, it it seems to me that those who are particularly being judged are those who identify themselves as his followers those who somehow consider themselves to be a part of the flock. And so his flock is before him, but his flock must be sorted out because there are sheep within that flock, but there are also goats in the flock. There are those who have been true followers of himself, but there are also those who have been false and untrue in their following of him. He divides the sheep from the goats. And so just for a moment, don't consider that this is just a message for Everybody who attends church on Sunday and states the creeds and believes that Jesus died for their sins and then all the other people who don't believe those things and are outside the walls of the church, it's not the case. The very language of it, the very protest that those who are brought under judgment give. When did we see these things from your Lord? Expresses that they 
They were moving along with the crowd. They were engaged in the various activities. They remind us of the voice of those who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not serve you and do all kinds of miracles in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. I go back to what we read in Jude. When the Lord Jesus gives us these pictures and portraits of the judgment that comes at the end of days, before he establishes his kingdom, he gives us an image and pictures of the nation gathered before him, but then he turns our focus, particularly by way of application, upon the church, upon the judgment of those who are true and those who are false within the church and the professors themselves. And I think that's what we should see here. There are sheep for sure in his flock, but there are goats as well. In my mind, I don't, I don't believe this passage actually in a sense, stipulates clearly what will be the judgment that will fall upon the wicked who have never heard the gospel outside the structure and the experience and the expressions of the body of Christ on earth, the visible church. Peter actually says this in 1 Peter 4, 17. If judgment begins with the house of God, what shall be the end for those who do not obey the gospel? And he indicates to us that when God begins his judgments and renders his judgments, the first place that we'll turn to render his judgments are those who proclaimed to be a part of the house of God. And I think what we're reading about in this passage, and Matthew, in essence, is a portrait of the judgment that begins with the house of God. And we're not told exactly what happens for those who are outside the house of God. Peter intimates that it will be even worse. What shall it be for those who are outside and do not obey the gospel? It's a terrible thing to fall in the hands of the living God. But it's the house that's in view here. The true sheep that come before him receive the invitation for him to come and to enter into his kingdom. But the goats, those who have been untrue and those who have been false, are sent away into unending judgment. And so, this day is still ahead of us. It's an actual day, in an actual place, upon this actual earth, at an actual point in time. And as surely as Christ has suffered and died in Jerusalem, as surely as he is buried and rose again, as surely as he has ascended into heaven, he's coming again, and the hour of that judgment will take place. We've noted throughout our consideration of the Olivet Discourse that the Lord Jesus was willing, as he taught it, as he spanned the period of time that went by and that he's covering, that during all of it, he allows for what he says to be applied to those he's speaking to. In other words, he allows for Peter and James and John to be those he's addressing. And then as they share it with us, and as we read it, it's as if he's speaking to us, and he's allowing us to be in that moment of time. But he's allowing for a moment, Peter and James and John, to be in the moment in which Jerusalem is destroyed, in which it's overrun by the general Titus, and which the walls of the temple are brought down in 70 AD. And just so you know, Peter and James and John, well, John isn't, but Peter and James are are martyred by that time. They're not alive to see those things. And John is not in Jerusalem at that time to see it as well. But he says, when you see these things, when you see these things. And then he gives a portrait of all the trials of wars and rumors of wars and the increase of earthquakes that will come upon them and all the persecutions that will take place in the life of the church age. And again, he says, when you see these things, he allows them to run through all that history and identify themselves in that moment. And he, he brings them into the great tribulation and all the vast horrific suffering of the great tribulation. And he basically says, when you hear these things, he allows them to be in that moment. And then he tells parables, warning them to be prepared for his coming when he comes to judge at the very end of the Olivet Discourse. And each one of those parables is a message to those in the church that they be ready and on guard for the return of Jesus Christ. 
They're not to be ready or on guard or waiting, simply looking at the skies. They're to be looking at their own lives to see that their lives are a reflection of those who earnestly love Him and seek Him and want to obey Him. And so He tells them three separate parables. And after the second parable, He says that they're to take heed. He says, you be on guard for these things. And He allows Peter, James, and John to see Him pointing His finger at them. You be on guard. You prepare yourself for this moment of judgment. He's saying that to us as well. Watch therefore, he says, for you know not neither the day or the hour when the Son of Man is coming. He's putting his listeners, he's putting us into the moment of his return, into the moment of the hour of judgment that he is describing to them and that we're reading about and considering this morning. They have to be ready to meet the hour of judgment. And this is what Christ says will identify to him his sheep. This is what he'll look for to see whether your sheep that will go into the kingdom with him. Let's remember those last three parables that we covered very quickly. What he'll see in his sheep is that they, like loving and faithful servants, are true to his own people and care for his own people. Like loving bridesmaids, they are enduringly waiting and keeping their eye upon him, longing for the presence of the bridegroom. Like faithful servants, they will take the riches that he has bestowed upon them and with love and gratitude they will care for his business. Those are the three parables. It's the parable of the house servant who cares and gives loving care to the family of the owner of the house. It's the parable of the bridesmaids who lovingly and enduringly look for the coming of the bridegroom. They're just not along for the social convention. They're just not a part of the crowd and the event, but they're looking for the bridegroom himself and waiting for him. And as a result, they've got... True oil and fire in their lamps, kindled and burning and enduring until he returns. There's the parable of the servants who are given a great endowment of riches, and they take what is given to them, and they invest it in the work and the labor and the business of their master. And when there is fruit from their investments, they say, Master, you did all all this for us. You gave us all this riches, and, and look what's been multiplied. They hardly believe what's been accomplished out of their faithfulness to their master and their king. Last week we said the business of the Christian is to proclaim the gospel, is to seek lost souls, is to build up believers in the faith in Jesus Christ. It's, It's expressed not simply as spiritual activity, but it is expressed in our prayers and in our words and our activity and our willingness to minister to one another. And Now it is precisely these things that are described as being judged as a way in which the king will identify who are a sheep and who are just goats that have made their way into his flock. They care for his family. Their care for the family is expressed because they care for Christ himself. They love the children because they love him. By the way, this is the greatest reason for a mother to love her children or for a father to love his children. The father loves the children for the mother's sake. The mother loves the children for the father's sake. The children are brought up into an experience of love that's an outpouring of the love for one another. And this is the love that leads Christ's servants into caring for one another. They love Him. They long for the bridegroom and they love whom the bridegroom loves. They care for it. They also love the bridegroom and they long that the message and the glory and the promise of the bridegroom might be known by more and more. And so they take themselves up to labor for the sake of the gospel. And... Just so you know, giving yourself to God's family, 
giving yourself for the king and love for him, letting your life heart be committed to his devotion and your longing and waiting for him in an age that's not looking to him at all and giving yourself for the message, the glorious message of the gospel of your king to be broadcast to others will result in you suffering. It will result in you suffering. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here Paul is explaining the suffering that takes place when you care for God's people and you care for the king and you care for the Savior and you care to take forward his message wherever he sends you. He describes it from his own experiences. He says of his own life, carrying forth those ministries, that he was in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. That is, he was sick to the point of death. He wrote about others that were with him, and the church was worried for the individual, because I can't remember which one it was right now, but he was sick to the point of death. In weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, And besides the other things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches was pressing in upon him. Who's not weak and I'm not weak? Who's not made to stumble and I don't burn with indignation? Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul again speaks of the impact of the labors for the sake of the gospel that he's experiencing as he seeks to serve him and serve God's family and also set the gospel forward to others. He writes, we are... Hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in our bodies the dying of our Lord Jesus, that the life of our Lord Jesus may be made manifest through our bodies. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Suffering. Suffering for the labors. Paul knew that those he labored for for Christ's sake and served for Christ's sake were being received and that service was being received as service to Christ himself. Paul knew that what he did for the body of Christ, he did for the head. He did for Christ. He knew it and he learned it in a negative fashion. You remember he was going to persecute the church in Damascus. He was going to go to imprison the Christians. And on the way, a bright light shone upon him. And the Lord Jesus spoke to him out of the heavens, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He knew it. What is done against the people of God and his faithful servants is done against Christ. What is done for them, for those who labor for his sake, is done for Christ. What is done to them, for the sake of Christ, is done to Christ. Go back to the passage now and read it that we're looking at, starting in verse 34. Matthew 25, verse 34. Jesus says, Then the king will say to those in his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. Think of all those who've given their lives to serve the gospel. Think of Paul suffering and laboring and willing to stand out in the cold against the forces of the Roman world and against the themes of his age, in order to proclaim an age that's coming, and a Savior who's conquered, and all the challenges that brought him, and the hardships that brought upon him. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. 
And I was thirsty and you gave me drink. Remember that when the Lord Jesus sent out the 70 and when he sent out the 12, he told them to stop with the people of peace that would receive them and remain with them. Let them care for them and provide for them. Don't worry for your provision. I'll raise up those who will provide for them. Remember that because it speaks to us here in this passage. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. When Rome was under persecution, the Christian could be brought to a sentence of death simply by being identified as a Christian. And if anyone would come to their trial to stand with them, they would be taken in and brought into judgment as well. It was a dangerous thing to stand with those who were standing for the truth. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a stranger and take you in and naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer them, assuredly, I say to you, as much as you did it for the least of my brethren, you did it for me. Notice something here, folks. The true sheep are not attempting to gain their salvation by doing good deeds. They're not even aware that they were ministering to Christ in what they did. They were only living out the change that he had brought to them when they believed in him and were saved. They didn't care for God's house and God's people in order to be saved. They didn't give themselves to the business of the Savior and suffer in the process of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth in order to be saved. They did it all because they had been saved. They were saved. When did we do these things, Lord? They were just doing what came to them naturally because their natures had been changed. They did it because they couldn't help but love the Lord Jesus. The goats, on the other hand, had no care for God's family, no care for his flock, only to the extent that they could gain something for themselves. No care for Christ, other than the sense that it gave them some sense of significance in the moment. No great love for him, no engaging the sufferings of ministry for the sake of the gospel and for the king. The difference between the two groups, what divide the flock in the end, one group truly loved the Lord Jesus, and the others didn't. That's the lesson in all. Love him. Find your love for him expressed in your care for his people. Find your love for him expressed in loving what he loves. Committing yourself to the business that he so longly wants to bring to the world. His gospel, his truth, his promise. Seeking those who are lost. Serving as he served. Always having your eyes on him. Always lovingly, longingly looking for him. The king is coming and he knows who it is that truly loves him. For they love him in this way. Another interesting thing about this passage again is context. And the context of all this application of being willing to suffer in ministry. And willing to suffer as you minister to those who are ministering. And to care for the body. And to care for Christ in the midst of the body. And to care for it through the body. The movement of the gospel the ends of the earth. The context is a world in tumult. It's the temple being destroyed in 70 AD. It's the treading of the Roman armies across the land of Judea. It's the banishment of the people of Israel from their homeland. It's the dispersion of the church to the ends of the earth. It's the rumors of wars and of earthquakes. And it's the coming trials of the great tribulation. Battles and strife all around. What are we to do? You're to be my sheep. In the midst of all this conflict, you're to be my sheep. You're to serve my people. You're to love me. 
You're to send forth my gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what's sounding forth. And all that tumult and all that turmoil, Jesus brings us down to this. There will be suffering, but I will conquer. And in my conquest, I will bring all those willing to suffer with me into my kingdom. These are my true ones. These are the ones that I'll find. How do you apply that? How do you respond to that? We must be attentive to the desires of our king, attentive to his people, attentive to his presence, attentive to the sounding forth of his gospel to the lost. How we join in that work, I can't fully say. In some places, it may require a Ukrainian to take up arms and go out and fight side by side with his neighbor for his homeland and for his nation and for his country. I can't tell you what it means always. But I can tell you what underlies the actions. It's a love for God and the people of God. A longing to care for his household. It's a love for Jesus and his glory and his honor. It's a desire that his gospel might go forward further and further into the age in which he lived. It calls us all to various actions, but above all, it certainly calls us to pray. certainly calls us to press forward press forward in the call that God has placed upon our lives. It's what the king's sheep do. And he knows it. And he knows them. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Again, Lord, our prayer is that the truth spoken here might be received by you with satisfaction. But it comes from faltering lips and faltering lives. So, Spirit of God, disclose our weakness and our sin and forgive us and cleanse us. And snatch in the hour of distress all those petty delights that became our pursuit other than these things. Make this central. Make this central, Lord Jesus. Loving you Loving you before one another. Loving you before a lost and dying world. Lord Jesus, take the message we are hearing that your spirit is saying. Broaden it out. Send it forth. Put it on the airwaves. Let the spirit, O God, send out beacons so that others who are attentive to your spirit and finding themselves in prayer and before your word might pick it up and hear it and have it pressed upon them and let this, this broadcast message grow and expand and touch lives throughout our city, throughout our state, throughout our nation, throughout this world. And Lord Jesus, may your flock endure faithful to you, gloriously moving forward with the calling you've given us until the day you call us home. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.